0: So the text that we're going to be looking at this morning accounts uh, for us a man who is born blind and Jesus heals him. If you read the whole chapter, which we won't today, you would notice that what begins as a a discussion on physical blindness actually ends up shifting to spiritual blindness. And that really is the whole uh, force of the text. That's what the meaning of this chapter is. But as you probably seen so far in John's gospel, there are often many sub-meanings that we don't often get to, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, kind of a sub-meaning in the chapter of uh, chapter 9. But for today's purposes... I'd simply like to focus on the tragedy of the man born blind and why it is that we experience such hard providences in life. Why do we go through hard tragedies as we'll see today? What causes this and why does God allow it to happen? These are some of the questions that we're going to look at this morning as we wrestle with this text today in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 verses 1 through 12. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world." Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we come humbly, asking, seeking knocking that you would show us answers sometimes to our uh, questions that we might have in our relationship with you sometimes the things that we experience in life but lord i pray that you would show us yourself this morning in the form of your son jesus i pray that as i preach this morning that you would guide my words lord i pray that as i speak about your words uh, that are in scripture here that are inspired by your holy spirit i pray that the same spirit that inspired these words to be written for us would work and inspire our hearts to apply them to our lives. Let us see clearly, your son Jesus, how you love us this morning, how you speak to us even through this word this morning at Village Church. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. amen. Amen. So as you can tell, when you read this story, and we kind of leave off there, uh, where's this guy that healed you? I don't know, he says. All right? This isn't the whole story. There's still more story to be had. But I wanted to stop at this point in the narrative, because um, in the actual happenings of this story, there was a break in time. It kind of slows down here. And we stop here because this man at this point is still calculating. He's trying to figure out what all has just happened. He doesn't even know where this man who has just healed him is. All he knows is that a man named Jesus healed him. He couldn't see, and now he can see. Now, consider his perspective as he's trying to wrestle with all this, all that has just happened, and all that has happened even prior to his life. I want you to kind of put your feet in his shoes this morning. This man was born blind. He couldn't see a thing since he was born. Now, think about what that would mean. This man has never seen the face of his mother. Think about the things that we take for granted every day. If someone tried to explain to him that your father's hair is starting to pepper gray. Have you noticed that? He probably wouldn't even be able to form the concept in his mind. He's completely blind. He's never seen a sunset in all its glory. He's never looked up at a dark sky and seen the radiant moon and all the stars up there beaming in the darkness. He's never experienced any of this because he's blind. He can't see. And because of his condition, he was forced to beg and make a living in this way. We see this in verse 8, that this is his state. He's on the streets, and he's begging, and people have seen him often. This is where he is frequently. So there he sat, day in and day out, waiting for others to support him because he's disabled. He has this inability. He's blind. Think about the things that he probably heard as he sat there and begged on the streets. You know, we sometimes forget that when people have inabilities, it often hyper-focuses their other abilities, doesn't it? Right? When, he, when people can't see, often they start to get to where they can suddenly smell better, they can uh, hear better, and all these other senses uh, that are normally kind of leveled out for us, they become heightened. So people probably whispered all kinds of things around this man that they didn't think he'd hear. But he probably did hear. And then one ordinary day, perhaps, maybe he heard the sound of several people starting to walk by. Like you can kind of picture it in your mind, close your eyes, and you can think about what he might have experienced. Okay, so there's a crowd. There's quite a few people walking by, maybe 12, who knows how many. Some of them start to mutter to themselves. Right? They're starting to say things, and he's starting to pick up on it a little bit. And then one of them gets the courage to ask what they've all been whispering about. Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, we don't know if this man actually heard this or not. It doesn't say in the text that this was within earshot. But regardless, I'm sure that this man had pondered this same question before. Don't you think? Why is this happening to me? Why am I born blind? This man's condition was a tragedy. All of you can see that. No one has to tell you that this is tragic. But why? What causes such tragedies to occur? Now, perhaps some of you have wondered the same thing in your own life. You don't have to be blind to have a tragedy happen to you or to experience it, do you? There's all different kinds of ways that we experience a tragedy. Why did my son tragically die in this unforeseen accident? It was all of a sudden. It was taken away. It was an accident. Why did that happen? Right? Why is dementia causing my beloved spouse to be different? I miss the way that he or she used to treat me. We were, we are married, and it often doesn't feel that way. It's a tragedy when we experience such things as that. Why is St. Jude's Hospital always packed? There's always people there, kids there, small kids, before they can even talk at the age where we might say, what may, what could have caused this? A child suffering from cancer. Is it because we deserve it? Is it because they deserve it? Was it his sin that caused this? Maybe this man was thinking, was I unfortunately born into a family of sin? But My my family, we're just sinners and this has rendered me blind. Now, it may have surprised you. I tell you this, that in ancient Judaism, the customary answer to those questions about sin are actually yes, right? Yes, they believe that suffering could be traced back to a specific sin. So in a way, the disciples are kind of questioning Jesus if he adheres to the traditional thinking. Jesus, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that our sins and the tragedies and the suffering that we go through can be connected back to our sin? And his reply to, did this man sin, or his parents' sin, is classic Jesus. As we've been looking through John, Jesus always gives the best answers, doesn't he? He essentially says, it's neither. It's not your sin, it's not your parents' sin, but, as it says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now I want you to notice something that Jesus does here. Catch this, this is very important. The disciples ask him the cause of his blindness. What caused this? But Jesus' reply is the purpose of the blindness. Right? Do you, do you see the difference, the distinction between the two? They're asking, what caused this, not what purpose does it serve? Okay? Jesus answers a little bit differently when they when, what they ask. The difference is important because when Jesus says it was neither this man's sin or his parents' sin, he's not saying that sin had nothing to do with this. He's not denying original sin. Jesus believes in original sin, nor is he even denying that sin can cause serious physical suffering. Jesus would affirm this. We've been preaching through John, if you recall, it's probably been months back, but in chapter 5. Recall in John chapter 5 when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, just like he's doing here, at the pool of Bethesda. And he met him afterwards. Do you remember what he said? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus isn't even denying that there can be some kind of connection. He's not denying that sin has even physical effects at times. But what he is doing in this text here this morning is dodging that question that the disciples asked them because it was the wrong question to be asking at that time. That was not the right question. These disciples were doing the very same thing that Job's friends did in the midst of Job's suffering, weren't they? They were trying to trace the line of sin Back to Job's condition. Well, you're experiencing this, Job. All your, your kids died because you did this. right? They were connecting the dots of Scripture. They were even building a scriptural case, uh, a, div- a divine case about why Job was suffering. It was because he was a sinner. That's why he's suffering. But if you read Job, you know that this is precisely the fatal flaw of these so-called friends. This is not why Job was suffering. In the opening line of Job, it tells us this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So it wasn't his sin or his parents' sin that caused that suffering that Job went through to happen to him. So I guess this really brings us back to the age-old question, doesn't it? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is it? Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that in verse 3. It might not be the answer that we want to hear, but it is the answer to that question, that the works of God might be displayed in them. Now, what does he mean by this? I need to unpack that a little bit. Well, this indicates that God, in his mysterious, and it is mysterious at times, but wise providence sometimes allows people to experience tragedy and suffering so that they can experience God's mercy and power and their refinement through the trial— or even through their deliverance from the trial. Could be either one, as is the case with the blind man, right? He was delivered from the trial. But there's often times where we experience tragedy so that we can learn to uh, draw closer to God and we're refined through the trial. I believe it was St. Augustine who once said that we would never know the beauty of the stars if it weren't for the dark sky, right? Tragedy has a way of illuminating the good that we wouldn't otherwise see. It kind of... us new eyes to see what's already been there all along but without the hardship without the darkness you can't see it very clearly when we reach the end of this narrative in the weeks to come we'll find that this man actually did see clearer than those who had sight the pharisees this is jesus's whole point of this chapter is that this blind man actually ends up seeing better than the pharisees the religious leaders we'll get there and it isn't, uh, isn't it often so that when people experience deep tragedy, they see things through a lens that only comes through the trial. Only they can explain it. They try to tell their family and their friends about what they've learned, even about God, through this suffering and tragedy. And they can't quite explain it because they've had this experience, right? They've had this personal, intimate experience with that time. And it brings them a surreal feeling that, they could, that they've not just been touched by the divine, but they've been held by him. God hasn't just come close to their door, but he's actually opened up the door and embraced them, even through their suffering and their tragedy. The tragedy spurred, it was actually the tragedy, spurred an unforeseen closeness to the God they would have otherwise ignored. They wouldn't have noticed him if it weren't for the hardship. Cancer brought me closer to God than anything I've ever had happen to me before. That's not a novel statement. You've probably heard it. Many times. I've heard it from people in this room before. They wouldn't trade their cancer because of what happened through that experience. It was tragic. It was hard. It was suffering. And they wouldn't look back and say, it was good. But they would say, God was good through it. He was doing something even through the hardship. And this shows us, uh, what this shows us is that God has a mysterious purpose in it all. Right? Catch that. He had a purpose in it all. The reality is that God could have prevented every tragedy a tragedy that's ever happened before it ever happened. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. We believe in a sovereign God. He could have stopped it. Why didn't he stop it? Because he had a higher purpose in bringing about a greater good. Romans 8, 28, you all know it. It tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things all things not some things not good things all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose god has a purpose in all things for those who love him and it is his good purpose what about tribulation in your health you might say what about when cancer actually comes and plagues you yes there is purpose distress in your finances yes Persecution of your faith, yes. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Well, you realize now I'm quoting scripture, so you have to say yes, right? <laughs> yes all to all those things, all according to his mysterious purpose, as Romans 8 tells us. God has a plan in all that happens to you. So Jesus says tragedies happen for the purpose of displaying the works of God. Oh, let's unpack that a little bit more. I want, you, I want you to hear clearly what I'm saying about these works of God and what Jesus is saying about these works of God that we see in uh, verse 3 and 4. The work of God that is manifested is not necessarily a miraculous sign like Jesus does here. It is that, but more importantly, it is what the sign points to. If you recall in John chapter 6, Jesus is questioned by the Jews, and we're actually going to get a definition from the words of Jesus what the works of God are. What must we do to be doing the works of God? The Jews asked Jesus. So there's that phrase, works of God. And Jesus answered them in John 6, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of God. So they said to them, well, What sign do you do that we may see, you and, uh, see and believe you? What work do you perform? All right, so they want signs. But what Jesus is saying is that actually the work is that you believe. Signs point to that, but the the, the work is actually the believing. So here Jesus defines for us what work is. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Whom God has sent. And just as a side note, as you're looking through your Bibles in verse 7, notice that. Perhaps this is why John makes the point to tell us that Siloam means what? Sent. He wants you to see something here. Otherwise, he wouldn't have just defined a random word there. He wants you to see something. To be doing the work of God, you believe in the sent one and evoke belief from others as well. That's doing the work of God. You believe and you're helping others believe as well. You're all pointing to this sent one. And notice what Jesus is doing here. He's actually making a jab at the pharisaical understanding of the Sabbath to provoke or you might say evoke uh, his disciples to a faithful belief. A better belief in who he is, who Jesus is, that he is the sent one, right, and what he's doing. He, he's teaching his disciples even through this blind man's suffering. Do you, do you see that? Okay. The fourth commandment says that we should not work on the Sabbath. That's what it says. So the legalistic understanding would say, okay, this means any kind of work, no matter what kind. No, no work, period. What it actually meant actual uh, understanding of the Sabbath, is that we should cease from the kind of work that exhausts and drains us spiritually and those around us. That's what it's talking about. It means to stop answering those work emails on Sunday. Right? It means to uh, stop taking work calls when your kids are begging to play with you. Dad, we play, we play. No, i got to take this call. i got to answer this email. It means to stop saying yes to those call-ins when you, you haven't went to church yet but someone calls you in for work, and you say, oh, I guess I'll go. And you do that frequently, that you make a habit of it. You forsake the assembling of believers, and you say, "Oh, all right, they called me again. Money. I'll take the money. Right? That's what it means. But the Pharisees said that it meant any kind of work. Oh, you want to visit your loved one on Sunday? Well, that'd be too far of a drive for it to be restful. Don't, don't, don't make that long drive, because that wouldn't be rest. That's work. Don't do it. Oh, you want to make a meal for the, the couple that's out sick this week. Lots of opportunity there. Well, that'd be too much work. You probably should just uh, stay at home. You don't want to drive that far. You don't want to go through the labors of making a meal for that person. Yeah, I know that you didn't know uh, that they weren't sick until today, but you still uh, you, you shouldn't make the meal. All right? That'd be too much work. That would not be restful. So look what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's making jabs. Jesus answers these disciples about their question of causation. By healing a blind man on the Sabbath. See how this is all connected. Jesus has so much purpose in all this. You could just go deeper and deeper and deeper. What Jesus is doing, even through these small conversations. You see, when Jesus says, this man is, uh, this man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's saying there's a higher purpose in this man's blindness even than his physical deliverance. That's not just why he's healing this man of his blindness. He's saying that through this man's blindness, others will see too. I'm going to enlighten you to something. I'm going to heal on the Sabbath. And that's going to open your eyes even to another reality. Not just am I a healer, but I am the healer that does something on the Sabbath. Others will believe that Jesus is the God who recreates on the Sabbath. Sabbath is for recreation. His father is working until now, and so is he. That's the point that Jesus is making. And to further show his divine nature, because Jesus is saying, I'm God through this too, he uses the clay from the ground and spit from his mouth to display his recreative power. Now think about that. Like God took dust, remember at the beginning? Like God took dust and breathed with his mouth into life, man, at the original creation, Jesus took clay from the ground And spit from his mouth To heal this man's eyes Now this was actually not a creative event The eyes were already there They were just broken This is a recreative event This is a redemptive event This is a reconciling event It fixes the brokenness in his eyes That sin had actually caused But that blindness served a purpose That the works of God might be displayed in him See how that all works together? Jesus has a purpose in all of this. That is, that others might believe that he is God and that he's working even on the Sabbath because God will not rest until all his creation is restored. He is at it and he's at it all the time, even on the Sabbath. In fact, that is what the Sabbath is about. is about recreating, fixing the brokenness in the world, preaching the gospel to those who need it, who are sick and weary and need help. Jesus is the sent one who is the light of the dark world. He brings purpose and meaning even to our suffering and he saves us from not just the punishment from our sins, but even the effects of our sins. You see, that's the distinction that Jesus really wants you to get there. This man isn't blind because he sinned. that Sin has caused all kinds of effects that we all experience. And Jesus is even saving us from those effects, not just the punishment of our sins. And we should take up his point about the night and day also this is very important for you to understand the urgency here that we see in verse 4 he's telling us about the night and the day we need to get to work he's telling us that life is short and his life was especially short think about Jesus and what he's doing here he had an impending doom that he was keenly aware of and this is what drove him to actually work on the Sabbath because Jesus knows he's a timing or a ticking time bomb Right? He is about to be crucified and all the world's going to change. He has an end date and he knows it. And maybe this is a good time for us to remind ourselves that we do too. Now, we don't know when it is. And Jesus, I think he knew about when his was, if he didn't know the exact moment. But he had this urgency to his life that while it's day, while you have light, while you're breathing, while you can see, while you can move, you need to be displaying the works of God by believing in him. And that's going to cause others to believe in him as well. This is the urgency that John wants you to get, that Jesus wants you to get from this text, is that God is alive, he's the sent one, and he's still working. And that is the work of ministry that he's doing. He's doing it even now, as we speak. And Jesus is still calling his disciples to this same work of God. It wasn't just the twelve. It's you. It's me. He's not asking you to spit on the ground and find someone blind. That's that's not what he means there. He's asking you to walk with him in the light as you come across those in need. Perform the works of God on them, especially so on the Sabbath. Sabbaths are for this. Sundays, the Christian Sabbaths, are days of prayer for the needy. It might be a little bit tiring to you, but that is actually a work of reconciliation. That is a work of ministry that is a recreative thing for you to do. It's for meaningful conversations that draw us closer to God. Even though you might walk away physically exhausted from the conversation, you are mentally built up. In your spirit, in your soul, you're drawn closer to God. It's for physically, even helping those who are in need, to remind them that Jesus is still working. Your brother or sister that's sick today, be a good day to care for them, be a good day to reach out for them, even if it's time for you. There's all kinds of ways that we can apply this. It's for hospitality, no matter how inconvenient it is. That's my own thing I struggle with. I have a house that's absolutely ripped apart, but that doesn't excuse me. It doesn't excuse me from trying to be hospitable and love those around me, right? There's all kinds of ways that we can be doing the works of God and that they can be displayed in us. That's our call, and we wanna be a part of that. We wanna be displaying the works of God. So some application. Church, don't let life's tragedies leave you trying to trace the line back to the sin and why it is that happened to you and then use that as an excuse. Well, I, I messed up. And that's that's why I have this tragedy down. There's just nothing I can do about it. Realize that God ordains our weaknesses even so that his glory might be displayed in us. Right? God has a plan in all of it. I want you to go back and think about this in Exodus. You don't have to turn there, but all the way back in Exodus 4, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Now think about this. Moses says, God, i got a speech impediment. I can't talk. I can't lead your people. I can't display your works. I have this tragedy that's happened to me. I can't even talk right. And then the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who do you think made that mouth that stutters? Who do you think made that mouth that doesn't work like you think it should work? And then he goes on to say, God says, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? God says, is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. He says to Moses, he says, you can't speak. Yeah, you can. I made your mouth. I'll make it speak. You're going to rely on me, you're going to be weak, and you're going to need me, but this is how I work. And when he says, now therefore go, and I'll be with you, with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak, doesn't this sound pretty close to Jesus' great commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Regardless of your inabilities, because Jesus is going to be with you even until the end of the age. Jesus is going to be with you to display his glory through your weakness. Maybe he'll remove the inability, like the blind man. We pray that he does. But maybe he won't, like Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul didn't ever get it removed. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. But God never removed it. Regardless, Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. weakness. Therefore, we boast all the more gladly of our tragedies, so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. For when we are weak, we are strong. How is that, you might ask? How does that make sense? Because when tragedy, and inability, or uh, circumstances outside of our control happen to us, this gives us the opportunity to remember and preach grace. Grace. You didn't deserve it. You did not deserve it. Let me close with this. You see, the disciples saw this case as a slightly more complicated scenario of suffering. It didn't quite make sense to them. If the man had broke his legs in a drunken accident, then they could say, well, that was the sin that caused it. He was drunk. And he broke his legs for this reason. right?" If he had fallen off the house and hit his head as a child, then they could have blamed his negligent parents. Well, you didn't put the fence up on the second story like the Old Testament told you to. Kid fell off. He bumped his head. Now he's the way that he is. right?" If this is what had happened, it would have made more sense. But this man was born this way, and there was nothing he could do about it. Nothing. Just like God made Moses' mouth, he made the blind man's eyes blind. And this beautifies all the more the actions of Jesus. He took an absolutely desperate situation, a man that was blind. He couldn't see a thing, and he saved him. He showed him the light. That's why he makes the point there: I'm the light. You're going to see. I'm the illuminating factor that you've been missing all along. And it took your blindness for you to actually see me. He was lost in darkness, and then Jesus found him. The blind man did not find Jesus. Jesus found the blind man. Right? He was in the dark. This church is grace. That's what grace means. And without tragedy, there is no grace. Think about that. Without tragedy, without hard circumstances in life, There is no grace. Grace strips our boasting down to the bare bones of Christ's power. All we can see is Jesus and Jesus at work in us. Grace teaches our heart to fear, asking why bad things happen to good people. It actually makes us tremble a little bit when we say that. Why? Because grace makes us realize there is no one good. No, not one. That's Romans. right? So think about what you're saying. Why do good things happen to bad people? Well, what good people? What good people are you talking about? And those bad things that supposedly happen to good people often transform the person to realize their tragedy was actually what brought them closer to Jesus that the works of God might be displayed in them. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus works through the hardest of tragedies, through the deepest of suffering. That he might display his glory and that you can even look at that and still say, and I know you can because you've all experienced this kind of thing where tragedy or suffering happens and only you can explain it. God's still good and he's really good. That's what grace does to us. It teaches us that. And sometimes it takes a little bit of darkness. Sometimes it even takes tragedy for us to be able to see what has been there the whole time. It takes a, a night, a dark sky to be able to see those beaming stars. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for missing the glory that has been there the whole time in our lives. We thank you that your grace is upon us to show us our need, to show us our reliance on you, and that when we are, when we are weak, we are ultimately made strong in Jesus. Father, I pray for each and every person listening to this sermon this morning that you would work on their hearts to remind them of your goodness even through the darkness, even through the tragedy. That we would see that even as there is dark in the world, Jesus makes very clear, he is the light. He is not the dark. I pray that we would be able to make a clean distinction between good and evil and never um, allow us to say that you are evil, God. All the evil that we experience is our sin. We've caused it. That's the cause. But Lord, you use even our sin, even our tragedy, for a greater purpose. And that is that the works of God might be displayed in us. Let us be a part of that, Lord, by your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.